Well, what I'm going to do this morning is break, first of all, from my pattern. I've been preaching through the book of Corinthians for some time now. And on this day, on this special occasion, as we prepare to receive Sandin and Christina into uh, the church through profession of faith, I'm going to take a few minutes just to speak to you. I'm going to speak to Sandin and Christina, and you all can listen in as I talk to them about Christ and about His goodness to them. And I told you guys a few weeks ago, I was thinking about this particular story as I was preparing uh, for this day. And I want you to see, first of all, that uh, Jesus here in our passage shows His mercy to this deaf and mute man. I want you to pick up the story in verse 31, this uh, wonderful tale of the grace of Jesus Christ and His healing power. We're told here in verse 31 that Jesus was in the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. We might ask the question, first of all, what was Jesus doing in Tyre and then Sidon after all? Because uh, they're not really a part of the land of Canaan, they're not part of Palestine. And Jesus' ministry, as he has made it clear on a number of occasions, is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not a Gentile mission at this point. This is specifically and particularly a mission to God's people, national Israel. And yet Jesus has gone to Tyre. And the reason why he's gone there is because he's tired. It's because of his disciples are tired. It's because they need time of, of refreshment and relaxation and some recreation, some time away from ministry. And we notice that back in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, every time Jesus intends to go find some rest with his, uh, with his disciples and for himself, they keep getting interrupted by the crowds. Well, finally, what Jesus does, we're told here in the Word of God, in verse 24, that since he could not find any rest, any break from ministry in the land of Palestine, he goes to Tyre. Verse 24 says, Jesus got up and he went away from there to the region of Tyre. We entered a house. He wanted no one to know of it. And so he has been uh, resting for probably a little over a month, if we were to take an educated and responsible guest. But finally, after this period of rest and relaxation, he goes back into the ministry. And we're told here in the Word of God that he went through Sidon, in verse 31, to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. I want to pause on that for a moment because it's been one of those places in the Bible where unbelieving critics, people who don't believe that the Bible is an inspired and errant and fallible word of God, have paused on this particular text and said this is one of those small little details which shows to us that the accounts we have in the gospel are nothing but fictions. Because here we're told by Mark that Jesus went from Tyre to Sidon, then to Galilee. And you say, well, what difference does that make? Well, the difference is this. Uh, Jesus went north to go south. As one Bible critic put it, it would be like going from New York City to Boston in order to go to Washington, D.C. And they look at this particular detail and they say, well, Mark obviously doesn't know anything about the land of Palestine. This narrative which has been handed down to him is covered with all kinds of glosses and fictions and details which are inaccurate. But I want to point out for you, so that your faith will be encouraged, and I'll come back to this in a moment, 
that the critics are entirely wrong because ancient maps that have been discovered more recently show that this is precisely the route that Jesus would have taken. He would have followed the normal trade routes from Tyre to Sidon, now south to the Sea of Galilee, because in between Tyre and to the east, Galilee, is an enormous mountain range which would have been safe or easy to go across. And so Jesus here in Tyre goes through Sidon and then south and east to Galilee and we're told that he went to the region of the Decapolis. In other words, Jesus went from one non-Israelite Gentile region, Tyre, to another non-Israelite Gentile region, Decapolis. Decapolis was a series of ten cities that were basically Greco-Roman in character. They were fiercely independent. They were pagan. And they were non-covenantal. And it's to this kind of a place that Jesus goes back into the ministry too. And the fascinating thing about that is you think about the region of Decapolis and the fact that it's dominated by paganism. And they show their hostility to Judaism and to Israelites. And one of the key facts of that uh, is that they have pigs that they farm there as a way of showing their distinctness and rather disdain for Israel and their commands. But it's in this region of the capitalists now where we pick up the narrative of Jesus' ministry and it's in this place that something very unexpected happens. Crowds are coming to Jesus. That's what verse 32 says. They brought him, one who was deaf, and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hand on him. And the first question that we ought to ask when we uh, discover the detail that crowds are thronging to Jesus and they're bringing people to Him for healing is to ask the question, well, why are people coming to Christ in a pagan and Gentile land? And the most likely reason for that is because of the testimony and the witness of a man named Legion. Fascinating story. If you go back to Mark chapter 5, and I'll just skim over the details quickly. But we meet Legion dragging his chains. Legion was dragging his chains because he was filled with demonic spirits who caused him to shout out and to be a public nuisance and to cut himself and to bother the people of the Decapolis region. And yet we're told in Mark chapter 5 that almost the instant that Jesus steps out of the boat onto this side of the Sea of Galilee into the capitalist region that this man meets Jesus and the demon spirits within him asked that they be removed and thrown into the herd of swine and Jesus casts out the spirits from this man and brings salvation to him. And here's the thing that connects that passage to this crowd here. It's found in verse 19. We're told that he begged Jesus that he would be able to go with him on his mission. And Jesus turned to him and told him that he was to go back to his people and to testify of the great things that the Lord has done for him. And in verse 20 of chapter 5, we're told he began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things Jesus had done. You plug that back into verse 32 and now you realize where, why all these crowds are thronging to Jesus Christ and His disciples because they have been testified to by this man Legion who has told them that Jesus does things well. 
And so they bring this particular person to them who is in need of healing. And it says in verse 32 that they began imploring him. Got to grasp the sense of how this emerges in the original. Uh, uh, Greek scholars have called this a dramatic present. It's not just that they were petitioning, it's that they were dramatically petitioning him. Repeatedly begging and imploring and requesting that Christ would relieve this man's problems. And this is where we break into the narrative, and this is where I want us to pay attention to settle in for a few moments. First of all, we're told in verse 33 that Jesus did respond. We're told, interestingly enough, first of all, that Jesus took this man away from the crowd. He probably grabbed hold of his arm or his hand and led him away from the commotion, the chaos of all of the people. And we're told that he does something very fascinating here in verse 33. That not only took him aside by himself, but he put his fingers into his ears and then he spit on his tongue. He touched that spit on finger to that man's tongue. And then he looked up to heaven and he sighed with a deep sigh. And he commanded that he be healed, saying, Ephatha, be open. You say, why would Jesus have done something like that? After all, here he is, the Son of God who has healing powers, who could have spoken a word all by itself, and it would have been accomplished. The facts of the text call us to ask some questions that seem to be the most reasonable explanation for why Jesus not only takes him aside, but then touches him, is that Jesus is now trying to enter into this man's world the only way he possibly can. It's as if Jesus comes up with some sort of a makeshift sign language to communicate to this man about himself. And the primary thing that he wants to communicate to this man about himself is that it's not all of the rituals of him touching and and putting his finger to his tongue that the reason why he is being healed is the power of God. He grabs this man's attention and he shows him what he's about to do. He acts out a parable of his salvation. He looks unto heaven and he proclaims the word, Be opened. And this is for the whole point of getting this man... To look to God and to His Christ for salvation. You see what we have here. And what Jesus does as He lays hold of this man. Is He acts out a parable of the gospel. He acts out a parable of the incarnation. See it reminds us of the roots of the gospel. And that is that Jesus, the Son of God entered our world. He didn't save us by sitting on a gold-plated throne in heaven, shouting down promises and words from above. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man and entered into the human condition in order to save us. And that's exactly what He does here. He penetrates even to the depths of this man's world of isolation and deafness. So that he can communicate the message of the gospel. One of the things that we do with our faith this morning, when it grows weak, and is riddled with doubts, and we have questions, is we go back to the incarnate Christ. 
not a bunch of philosophers who sit around speculating on abstract concepts and ideas. We are people who are drawn to a man who is the Son of God, who is our Savior. And when our faith grows weak, Stan and Christina, when your faith grows weak, when you go through times of trials and doubts and questions and wonders, what you're to do is to go back to this Christ. This man who became incarnate. This Son of God who came to enter into the human condition to save you. It's to focus on Him for your spiritual growth and grace and help. You know, something marvelous happened here is He put His fingers in His ears and He touched His tongue as He looked to heaven and sighed and groaned and commanded that this man's tongue be loosed and his ears be opened. Verse uh, 35 says, His ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus healed him. But that's just a, a symbol, really, or a point or two, that salvation has come to this man. What has happened in his heart has been confirmed externally being able to hear and to speak. But the message is not about hearing or speaking. The message is about salvation. We know that because of verse 36. Jesus does something very unexpected here. It says he gave them orders not to tell anyone. Can you imagine such a command? The man hasn't spoken or heard perhaps years and years and years and the most natural response to experiencing uh, that miracle and that blessing is that he would tell everybody about it you know, scholars and commentators look at this and they scratch their head and they wonder and they have all kinds of proposals and solutions for why Jesus would have done something like that and I think the main reason why Jesus said if I could just cut all of those uh, down to size and just encapsulate it into one idea I think the reason why it happened is because the very speaking of the man is the testimony the very speaking man is the testimony it speaks for itself that the man hears it speaks for itself that he talks No one could do this but God. What are we to take away from this passage? What are we to take away from this? I want to begin negatively. The first thing that I want to say is that this is not to be read as a potential promise to those who are deaf that if they just have enough faith, that God will heal them. Now, my heart is broken when I hear how passages such as these are used by false teachers to tell people if they just have enough faith. After all, it happened in this case, and so it must happen in all others. But that's to completely misread this passage. This passage is about something far more than this one person experiencing deliverance and wholeness in his body. This passage is about Christ and the arrival of his messianic kingdom and what that means for the future. You say, how do you know that? The answer is a word that Mark uses here in verse 32. It says they brought to him one who was deaf 
and spoke with difficulty. It's that word there, spoke with difficulty. In the original, it's magalalam. Magalalam, you say, so what? Well, the fact of the matter is, there's only two places in the entire Greek Bible where this word is used. Once here, and the other time in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, in Isaiah 35. Just to backfill some information there. It's a prophecy of Isaiah. In advance of Jewish exiles returning back to the land of Canaan. Prophetic idiom is used there to describe the blessings of salvation and what's used as the wholeness and the blessing that will come to these weary exiles as they come back to their home in Palestine. But one of the great blessings which is to indicate this era of blessing that's going to come to Israel according to Isaiah 35 is that the deaf will hear, the blind will see, and the lame will walk and the mute will shout with joy. Mark uses that particular word to tie this text to that prophecy as a way of saying that this is about far more than just a healing. This is about the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. This is about the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who brings with him his messianic kingdom. We know that's the case because that's how Jesus himself interprets this prophecy. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Luke chapter 7 verse 20. The disciples of John the Baptist, we are told, at some point in John the Baptist's ministry, were sent unto Jesus with this one question. And the one question that was given to Jesus was this. Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? And do you know what Jesus' answer was to that? It was the quote Isaiah 35.5. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached. Jesus interprets this and applies it to himself. It's so, so much bigger than just the healing and the restoration that comes to one man. It is about the arrival of the kingdom of God and the Christ who is the one who is going to restore all things and make all things new. You see, Jesus inaugurates His kingdom here. But the Bible tells us that's not just it. Not just about inauguration. It's about the future. It's about the day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory. That's the kingdom come with power that Jesus instructs us to pray for in the Lord's Supper. And in that kingdom of power, when it comes in all of its glory and its fullness, Revelation 21.4 describes what it will be forever and ever and ever and ever. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You see, this miracle that Jesus did on that day is Jesus' way of saying, That the promised salvation is here and it's in Him. 
And we look back to that in order that we can look forward to the future with hope for what Jesus will do. That's what we're all called to hang on to this morning. What Jesus has done points us to what Jesus will do. And that is bring restoration and wholeness and healing and grace to the totality of our existence. In other words, this miracle is about hope. This miracle is about trusting in Christ who is the great Messiah, the liberator and the Savior who is going to bring salvation in all of its fullness to all of its people. That's what we're to hang on to this morning. And the way we access that messianic salvation is the same way that this deaf mute did. It's by coming to Jesus Christ, helpless and broken, so that He fills us with His grace. You see, that's who this salvation is for. It's not for the self-righteous. Jesus said they don't need healing. It's for those who are helpless. It's for those who are sinful. It's for those who are broken. It's for those who are needy. And the way we access that is by coming and acknowledging our helplessness. Asking God to bring His healing and His salvation. And that's for everyone. I want that to be firmly implanted in your mind this morning. That Christ is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. And Christ has come to not only inaugurate His kingdom, but to direct your faith and hope to what He will do when He brings His kingdom with great power and glory. And it's for you if you trust Him. There's one last thing in this passage that I want us to see, though. And that is the main actor. And the place that we focus our faith on. And that's the speaking God. The speaking God is the one we're directed to this morning. So fascinating and ironic, I suppose, when the thread of this text is dominated by silence. That the focus that we are to turn to is not the silence, but the speaking God. The speaking God is stamped across this passage. The speaking God is the one who prophesied centuries before the fact that this Christ would come and bring this messianic salvation. Uh, The speaking God is testified to here in our passage in Jesus Christ who takes this poor man aside and relieves him of his physical distress by saying, Be open! The speaking God is found in this text by the mere fact that we have it. Mark recounts this miracle by divine inspiration. Through a speaking God, we have the passage which is before us this morning. You know, I started out our passage this morning and digging into it by pointing out that there's all kinds of people who spend a lot of time trying to poke holes in the Bible telling us it's really not all that reliable because even in the small details like Jesus' travel plans the authors are wrong 
Well, I want to tell you this morning that our speaking God is not wrong. That our God speaks factually, infallible, inspired, inerrant words. And He is right even in the smallest details as we demonstrated. What do we do with that thought? What we do with that thought is trust what He says. If God in His inspired word is accurate to the smallest detail of the passage, then that means this morning that the words that He speaks are words that you can confidently believe in and rest your faith upon. And you can believe upon this God who speaks in this passage and this God speaks and testifies to one thing. And that's His Son, who He has appointed to be our Savior, who verse 37 records, does all things well. People of God, I want us to walk away this morning from our passage with our faith focused upon that one who our speaking God testifies to, Christ, His Son who does all things well.